Welcome all to the first real episode of Things I Haven't Even Told My Therapist. At the time of this recording, I'm coming at you one and a half weeks fully sober, thinking as clear as ever, and boy is it fucking terrifying. I appreciate your interest and engagement more than you know. In the introductory segment, I know I addressed a broad range of topics that I've encountered in my own life. As I expressed before, my goal of this show is to destigmatize the tough discussions of mental health today and, in the process, seek my own answers and find comfort in my struggles. Although my stories may sometimes be raw or very personal, the reason I seek to use this medium is because I spent the longest time not being honest with myself about the problems that I've had. I have resorted to such an extreme measure as I need the accountability of an audience to not put up with being fed bullshit like I would to myself. Today, I will be discussing one of the hardest things to do, and that is the matter of accepting the nature of your struggles. While some of my stories will require alluding to other individuals that I may have affected or hurt on my long-winding, ongoing path to understanding my own troubles, today will be as self-reflective as they come. The first story I'll tell is my own version of Goldilocks and the Three Bears. But instead of a curious girl, it's a depressed kid, and instead of porridge, it's antidepressants. When I was a freshman in high school, it first became apparent that I may have something chemically deficient along the lines of depression. After meeting with my first psychiatrist, I was put on my first medications. My reaction to this first drug was, to say the least, counterproductive. Not only did I become drastically more depressed, but along with that, I developed a pretty formidable binge eating habit as a response to stress and overthinking. My freshman year, I had played as a 165-pound outside linebacker as well as a receiver, and I ballooned to a 215-pound O-lineman by my sophomore year. I think my biggest takeaway looking back on the process was not as much viewing it as a paradoxical reaction to a medication like my doctor saw it to be. It wasn't the stress I bore as the oldest child of adults going through a divorce as my psychologist and parents alike thought it was. I think the true cause of what was nothing less than a short slip turning into a full-blown downward spiral was the shame I bore finally having to acknowledge the fact that I had depression. The fact that, in theory, I had to be on medications in order to just be able to conduct myself like a typical teenager, especially in a time when that was not a thing that anyone, especially men, talked about openly. I felt ashamed that I couldn't just, quote-unquote, be normal. This was the hardest moment to accept, and when dealing with mental health issues, it's a dilemma you must face at every new turn in the course. So there I was, parents divorced, unhappy with my physical appearance, depressed, and embarrassed of all three of those facts. I was entering my sophomore year and found myself even more lost than I had entering high school. Evidently, my run with med number one had been long overdone, so it was at this point that I got put on my second medication. This time around, I was able to stifle the ongoing binge eating, but these new meds made me feel like a zombie. I had previously been like a human emotional roller coaster. I was someone who would previously ride the highs and bring the energy on some days and then would be an absolute buzzkill of a human being on other days. When I began these new meds, those extremes faded away. The problem here was, all of a sudden, I had a tell. And as my close friends began to pick up on my odd neutrality, I would inevitably have to explain to them that I was on these medications, thus having to tell them I was depressed. This became another aspect of my shame. I started to skip taking them every now and then mostly just because feeling something at all became more appealing to me than the form of going through the motions these second meds put me through. I didn't realize it fully at the time, but this pattern made the days off even more depressing. 
I made it through the football season, and as the dark, wet, rainy Seattle winter rolled around featuring yet another four-month hellscape for anyone with even a shred of self-doubt, it became apparent that the second cycle was similarly incompatible with how I would see any semblance of improvement. Back to square one. Scared, insecure, and overthinking to my uncontrollable brain's nauseating desire, it was time for my third appearance on the game show of The Prescription is Right. Growing increasingly frustrated with my lack of progress, I approached the psychiatrist's office with a new level of disdain. Only this time, shocker, he got it right. Over the next several months, I rediscovered a lot of motivations that had been amiss for some time, and things were getting back on track for my relationships. And all was happily ever after. I'm joking. Sadly, this was nowhere near the end of my antidepressant use and mental self-destruction. And I'll tell you all about it after a word from our sponsors. Now back to the show. A couple years went by. As things go, there were ebbs and flows. Some good times, some bad, some really good, some really, really bad. But it was in college where I saw my next major downturn. Now you see, for some time now I'd gone through a cycle of healthy summers and brutal, depressed winters. Some form of medium period in between. After all, Seattle, Washington is home to the second most depressing winners in the country, according to SmartAsset.com. You would think I would have picked up on the hint and thought to myself, hey, maybe I should go someplace sunny, like California. Uh, or really just anywhere with plenty of sun, maybe some ocean, some coast. Wrong. I chose to go to Maine. I guess I ended up with some coast, but also winter is even colder and darker. I mean, don't get me wrong, Bowdoin was a great school, but I've only had two full semesters of in-person classes. Furthermore, there is a very apparent outspoken population dealing with their own mental struggles, which just all ends up feeding off each other. I mean, this place should just rebrand as an acting school with how well some people seem to be holding it together. Not only that, but the alarming lack of school spirit was so far from the world I had grown up in, and not many others seemed to give a shit about that. So here I was, at least 11 hours of travel between me and my home, on a campus where everyone is fighting their own battles, not rooting for many, if any, others in the process. Also, side note, graded attendance is absolute bullshit. Being punished for taking a mental health day should be criminal, and this is definitely a factor in the struggles of so many college students. No upper-level classes have it, and it makes no sense. If I can get the grade I want in your class without showing up to every day, I'm sorry if that's an insult to your pride, Professor, but I promise it's nothing personal. In case you couldn't tell, it was here that my anxieties really started to pick up. And with it, so did my drinking. I found that when I got stressed out, I would begin to really beat up on myself, creating a self-actuating loop of berating myself for every error, overthinking everything, including the act of overthinking itself. I had come to this school without any sense of support system. Furthermore, there were some unresolved family matters I had left at home that, once I got to campus, I was kept in the dark from in order to allow me to focus on school. However, as good as the intention was, this was when my communication-based anxiety and PTSD started showing itself. As being left in the dark or unsure of the state of loved ones became a huge trigger. Through all this, I felt hopelessly alone, even as I grew friendships. I kept my use of medication a strict secret, and along with it, my history of mental health problems. These pressures, feelings, anxieties, and above all else, 
loneliness, amassed in a total disconnect from all aspects of my life. I'd be at practice thinking about classes, in classes thinking about practice, and on my own doing work worrying about just about every little thing that could go wrong. Even during my first semester here, I had found that in my efforts to control my overthinking, I took up the act of overdrinking. First, the competitive factor of drinking became something that was so alluring to me. Coming off a successful high school career, as soon as I got to campus, I had to start dealing with some injuries, causing me to not feel like the competitor that I once was. But at the heart, I was still the competitor, but just lacking an outlet. So playing a night of Pong or 21 or baseball or all of the above took over that competitive urge. This became dangerously entwined with the natural implicit competition of the act of drinking itself. It became something I could hang my cap on and, in the process, would be able to use it to bypass the naturally awkward interactions that came with making constant introductions as a freshman in college. Where this problem of mine really started was as a result of my own anxieties. Now, something I didn't know at the time, but honestly I probably should have been able to put together myself, was that if you start using something with an addictive quality as a coping mechanism for anxiety, your brain chemically begins to expect it when the anxiety starts to swell up again. As college grew more difficult and COVID became a new source of stress, it created a self-propelled cycle. Furthermore, small amounts of alcohol would prove to only increase anxiety, meaning that a drink or two would naturally become many more. However, as a college student, I wrote this off as normal college binge drinking. That was until it became a more natural habit of mine. I'd find myself over-serving myself far more regularly. And when the people I cared about raised concern, as opposed to taking a step back and trying to focus on the root of the problem, the self-consciousness of letting my close peers down only led to more anxiety and continued the process. And I faced this with complete denial of any issue. That was until, for a friend of mine, the constant concern became too big of a load to bear for far too long. Thus, the anxieties I had always faced came to reality through my own mistreatment of the cause. This was probably the hardest truth to face for myself. It was gaining clarity of this situation that brought me back to the feelings of six years ago facing my original depression. Surely I should have learned from the past that confronting an issue and accepting its place is the best way to begin to combat it. Given the recency of this event, it is from here an uphill battle. First, I intend on going substance-free to reset my body's tolerance and natural responses to my anxiety. I have learned that facing my stress head-on is by far the most healthy way to approach it, and I am sure to have plenty of opportunities over the next month for stress to flare up. I mean, family holidays alone. In order to amend things, I'm going to have to look past my own faults and not beat myself up for them in the process. Like all those other times, I need to exonerate myself of all the guilt and shame that my mind will naturally desire to produce for itself and understand how I can grow from that instead. At some points, you must accept the fact that you might have to face some things alone in your head because only yourself can provide you with that peace that you need. Anyways, I guess the point of what I'm trying to say is that it is a lot easier to improve your mental state when you stop beating yourself up for it. This has been a long struggle of mine as positive self-talk became increasingly difficult as I became increasingly annoyed with my own inability to get better or, as I said earlier, quote-unquote, be normal. But looking inward and understanding that what you're experiencing is not your fault is square one of things starting to look up. Also, I know in the past I've spent a lot of time feeling sorry for myself, 
Well, that's a fair reaction to a continuous pattern of letting yourself down. Accepting my own part in my pain is not necessarily a controllable variable, but certainly one that I have the ability to confront, which was a really productive way of starting the baby steps to helping myself out. My final note is, if you're struggling or you've sent some concern from the people who care about you, I recommend taking the time to reflect and face those habits. Because I promise you, it is so much worse to have someone else make that decision for you. So as I've said in the past, this has been something I've really wanted to engage a lot of outside voices on. And thankfully, someone has actually taken their time of day to uh, share their own personal story of a struggle that they went through. And um, especially with regard to the tale of binge eating and um, weight issues that I had growing up through my depression, I think this one's pretty relevant. So here we go. I spent a whole summer losing weight through unintentional starvation, basically. Working 12 plus hours a day at two jobs, not a whole lot of time in between the two jobs to eat, and the options at lunch break were pretty limited. So I got skinny in a matter of months. Everyone who I hadn't seen over the summer were very proud of of how I'd done it. Uh, I'd been fat before, but deep inside I knew it wasn't from healthy reasons. I've lied or been lying about how I did it. For example, I just watched what I was eating, or... I drank only water and cut out sugary shit like soda and candy, or I worked out five times a week. Those things fucked me up for a minute and still sort of does. Didn't feel like I deserved to be in my body because I had treated it unintentionally like shit to get where I got. I feel that, especially as a dude, body dysmorphia is a pretty wimpy thing to get our minds cut up in, but it is definitely real for many. Not only that, I think it's a really fucking weird place to be mentally. One that feels so oddly specific that you tell yourself you'll be fine or no one's going to understand. Now, I'm not bulimic or anorexic. I've never forced myself to throw up because of my appearance, and otherwise I'd say I'm very self-accepting to some degree. But even when your own parents ask if you're getting enough to eat at college, it can throw you for a loop. Especially when you concern yourself with whether or not you've gained weight since coming back to campus. I sometimes feel like body dysmorphia is one of those self-contained issues, one that you can't really tell anyone, but I'm definitely thankful for you opening up this podcast so I can get this off my chest. Now, to whoever posted that, I wanted to say my deepest, deepest thank you because, as I've said previously, this is about all of us healing together and all of us confronting those things that have given us such a hard time in the past. Well, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed, found comfort, were intrigued, or reacted in any other way you might have experienced as beneficial. If you have a story you would like to share, a recommendation, or request of subject matter, feel free to either fill out the survey in the podcast Instagram bio, or even DMing me or that same page. I can't wait to continue to grow with you. I'll see you next time on a new episode of The Things That I Haven't Even Told My Therapist. (laughs)